In the order of worship, it's hard sometimes when we sing such beautiful truth not to get lost in the moment of how good and gracious our God is. I don't know about you. Is anyone need of in grace this week? Anyone need of God's grace this week? Anybody, and I'm going to get you a habit. Anybody lived a perfect week? Nope. The hands go down. All right. So we're, we're all in need of God's, God's grace and uh, submit our thoughts and our lives to Him. May He be uppermost in our affections right now. Um, instead of a testimony, I'm going to do something very different. I don't know if I've ever done this in seven years here. Um, but uh, in, in speaking with the elders this week, we all thought it was, it was necessary and good uh, to do a little teaching uh, instead of the testimony time for this seven minutes. So if you'll bear with me, I think it's very important and it's very unusual with the topic that I'm going to talk about. Again, I don't know, I don't think I've ever spent seven minutes or so talking about uh, this. And so um, I, I want to talk to us about an honorarium. What? Yeah, an honorarium. As the elders met together uh, this week, and we are having a special guest come, uh, the question was raised. And you know, I could do this teaching during the members' meeting, but for some reason, we don't have this many folks here for our members' meeting. And so I'm going to do it now. And, and so, um, you know, the elders are the spiritual leaders of the church. We've been praying and discussing what should we do when Bill Mills comes. What have we done in the past when we've had a, a real special speaker come, or has anyone come and, uh, out from outside the church to... Uh, fill the pulpit and speak at several different um, events. If you look in your bulletin that he's going to be speaking of, and instead of saying, "Well, this is what we've always done," and 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 this is what we did at our last church, you know, we went to the Bible, and you want your elders to go to the Bible, right? Um, so we looked at First Timothy five, we looked at Galatians six, um, some passages in First Corinthians as well. And I don't have time; I'm doing a sermon on this, so I'm just going to introduce this today, and uh, you'll probably hear more about it in subsequent members' meetings or something like that. We'll put some more feet to this teaching. But um, we're going to see how some of these scriptures relate to how we're supposed to give to those who preach and teach the, the Word of God. And first, let me say this, um, that in a few decades of ministry, I have seen some churches think that God's finances, God's money, or is their money, and, and churches who really think, you know, it's probably a good thing that their pastors and guest speakers uh, live just above the poverty line. Um, now, don't worry, I'm not going to health, wealth, gospel kind of thing. You know, you know I despise that. Um, and, and those churches don't, just don't think biblically, okay, and they're thinking and they're living. And thankfully at Monument Hill Church, where I know at least the past seven and a half years that I've been here, um, that many of you, most of you give... Um, uh, cheerfully and generously uh, to the regular tithes and offerings of the church. Uh, that being said, let's take a look. Uh, Will, if you'll put up First Timothy five, seventeen and 18. Uh, first, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So the connection between verses 17 and 18 uh, really shows how uh, highly Paul valued the ministry of the gospel. Um, I wrote some notes here. I'm going to go over them uh, because if I'm not, I'll go 15, 20 minutes. Um, So he says, in effect, so even if these deserve a fair wage, then how much uh, is deserved by the one who works all the time in the highest and most important calling God gives? Certainly his work is worth at least twice what other people get. Stay with me. 
What I'm saying here is this is what this means. We're going to look at it in the Greek in just a second. That's what a double honor means. I mean, some of us have never actually investigated this passage of Scripture at all. But this passage says that preachers and teachers of God's Word are worthy of a double honor. What in the world does that mean? It doesn't mean that every pastor or guest speaker should get paid double what others get paid, but he's worthy of it. That's what the Bible does say. Right? He's worthy of it. Some men are called to pastor and elder a church full-time vocationally. It's the means in which God provides for him and his family. Some are lay elders that have other paying jobs. And some are called to um, a teaching ministry, let's say, a nonprofit where they travel and preach, evangelists, Bible teachers who run nonprofit ministries, etc., you know, so it's really a good question, right, church? Um, what should we pay them? I mean, that question comes up uh, when we give them an honorarium. Just enough to get by? Just enough to barely cover their expenses? Or are they indeed worthy of a, a double honor, which the Bible says, that they are worthy of that and deserves his wages, then they need to be paid well. Why? Well, when we think about it, and I have thought about this in, in my life many times, but... Um, what is the most important treasure in the world to us and to others? What's the most important treasure in the world? Well, it's Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? It's the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Well, following the principle then of 1 Timothy 5, we see that Scripture doesn't caution us, church, against paying our preachers and teachers of the Word too much, but it does caution us about paying them too little. Now, bear with me. As you know, I'll look everybody in the face, this is not about me, all right? I rarely speak of money and stewardship, but you know what? Maybe I should speak about it a little bit more. I mean, the Bible tends to speak about money a lot. You can't serve both God and money. Uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, there's much that Jesus and talks about where, where, where we spend our, our finances, our money. And so that applies to me as well as it does to you. So the preachers and teachers of the gospel who I have known well, they aren't in it for the, the money, even the ones who run teaching and, and, and Bible ministries uh, who aren't full-time pastors. They're called to teach and preach the whole counsel of the Word of God, and some of them are not full-time, not supported by a local church. So, obviously, we have Bill Mills coming next weekend, and it's obviously the reason why we elders are addressing the issue this week. Um, and so, I'm going to pause there a second which I was supposed to do a minute ago. Take a look at these next slides. Uh, Will, would you put up the next slide about... Uh, okay, there's the passage from Galatians. I'm actually going to get to that one in a minute, but one who has taught the word must share. Uh, okay, we'll go to the next one. Um, and so in 1 Timothy 5.17, I went to the Greek New Testament, uh, looked, at, looked at it there. The word is T-I-M-E-S. It's in Greek, it's pronounced timaes. The definition is a valuing, a price, usage, a price, or honor. As I looked at 10, 12 passages where this word is used in the Greek, and the majority of them do deal with something like compensation or, or, or pay, or, or, or the honor means a pay, not just, hey, we honor that you came to speak at our retreat, and here's a t-shirt, preacher. Um, that's horrible, all right? And so next, next slide. So, in looking at the Greek um, concordances and lexicons, uh, this word is a valuing by which the price is fixed, the price itself, or the price paid or received for a person or thing bought or sold. And, and the second uh, 
concordance, uh, honor which belongs or is shown to one, the honor of one who outranks others, preeminence, or honor price sum, a value, money paid. Okay, so go to the next one. Next slide. And here's actually the, the Greek three words. I didn't want to give you all of them, but th- this is of double honor, let it be counted worthy. When it talks about the elders in this passage, I mean, here's the actual Greek New Testament, all right? And so here's timais, here's diplace, diplace, and uh, axiosthosan, okay, let it be counted worthy. And so this honor, when we read in our English translation, the elders who uh, are preaching and teaching the word are worthy of a double honor, this is exactly what Paul meant to say. So in speaking of, in thinking about, well, how, how, how should the scripture guide our principles in giving what we historically, when I grew up and somebody came, it was called what? A love offering, right? You're familiar with that term, right? Well, we just think it's a little more biblical to say, well, we want to take an honorarium. And so the elders, you know, in establishing this for, you know, our guest speaker next weekend, we'll be speaking four or five times, we said, well, how could we do this? How could we honor God and his word and this person? I mean, we could, we could throw out a number and we could say, well, people give to the regular tithes and offering of the church. Thank you so much, you know, for doing that. Praise God that we do. But what, how can you receive the joy? If you go back to the Galatians 6, 6 uh, slide, Will, how, how can we, how can we, um, you are taught the word. We are taught the word. We share all good things with the one who teaches. And, and there are other verses from 1 Corinthians. And, and so I think basically what we've arrived at is that we just all want to be prepared next Sunday when Bill is here to give an honorarium. That's all. I mean, that, that's all. As the Lord leads you, we're not telling you how much to give. We're just asking you to pray about it. And uh, the, the odd thing in the service next week is after we take the offering and the deacons do that, I'll be talking to them this week. They're, they're going to come back up and they're going to take a second offering. Okay, and that's going to be the honorarium, all right? So, and that, that's going to be for, for paying our, our guest speaker and giving him a double, well, the double honor actually will be, and then the church is going to match whatever, you know, out of our budget, what, what we give. Um, and so, there's a lot more that can be said about that. Um, there'll be more, uh, perhaps, too. It's not really that, in, in, in a sense, it's, it's a big deal because we're trying to uh, build a healthy biblical church, which... Um, uh, follows God's word more than just tradition, what we've grown up with, all right? So there's my, ooh, eight-minute teaching uh, on that. So I went too long. Would you open your Bibles, please? We're in the book of Ephesians. We're in a book of, the book of Ephesians where we finally made it to chapter 6. I, I began that last week. We hope, Lord willing, to go a little further, maybe through verse 9 this week, as we want the, to, to know and and teach and preach the whole counsel of God's Word. And so if you'll follow along with me, it's, if you need a Bible, take one. It's in the chair in front of you there. You can even take that home with you. Our Bibles are gifts always. You can take one with you if you need one or need to give away. We'll replace them. It's found on page 979, Ephesians chapter 6. So let's hear the Word of God, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, 
but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there's no partiality with him. May God bless the reading of his holy word. So last week, church, I tried to cover the first four verses, and in a roundabout way, uh, I did. I didn't quite get to verse four, I don't think, but I tried to make the point that God-centered families please God with husbands and wives submitting to Christ first because this passage that I just read in the context of Ephesians, we, we looked a week before, two weeks ago, at wives and husbands. If you look at chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. And right above that, we began it all with verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul is transitioning here and talking about different ways in which we submit in our lives. We are called to submit. Submit first to God, submit to Christ, submit to others out of reverence for Christ. Began with husbands and wives, moving into children and parents, then moving into bondservants and masters. So there's the context there of this passage. So today I want to expound a little bit more on verses 1 through 4 and then move into 5 through 9. Now, as I said at the beginning, submission is not a popular topic in our culture today, right? It's been defined in many ways, some good and some not so good. And um, last week, I, I briefly went over again some about the wives and the husbands. And I think I need to review that again because in the context of our passage today, it really helps the children if moms and dads are submitting to God out of reverence for Christ first, okay, and submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ and, and what, we, what we saw there. Because submission, as we saw two weeks ago, one of the definitions is this, uh, in, in relationship to the husband-wife relationship. And uh, the submission there was defined as a voluntary yielding, ladies, a voluntary yielding in love to your husband's gentle and sacrificial leadership. Men, we're called to lead spiritually in a gentle way in which we show that we love our wives and lay down our lives for our wives, okay? And in and, and sacrificial love and service, well, love is actually defined as a sacrifice if we were to get into that. But there's another good definition of submission, a longer one, that I wanted to share with you all this morning. And it comes from my mentor, Dr. John Piper. And I think this is good as we we again view ourselves as submitting our lives to Christ. And here's the longer definition, if you will. When the Holy Spirit is holding full sway in your life, then your heart brims with a song of gratitude and your heart humbly submits to serve those around you. I mean, you really got that from Ephesians 5, 19 through 21. But submitting yourself to someone means not rebelling with some sense of superiority or, or a feeling that you know, you're too good to stoop and help someone when they ask you to help or you see a need. It's what Paul means when he says earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
And you've been called in all lowliness and meekness with, with patience, forbearing one another in love. And Paul also says this throughout the book of Romans 15, 12. Let us please, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to edify him. Romans 12, outdo one another, outdo and showing honor. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in lowliness count each other better than yourselves. Now that kind of humility, biblical humility, and readiness to serve rather than to be served, to honor rather than to be honored, is what? It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit in your life. And when you're filled with God's Holy Spirit, then I believe we'll be submissive to one another in this biblical way. So there we have submission to Christ first. If he's your Savior, he's your Lord. Let me say that another way. I have a slide. If Christ is your Lord, then he is the Lord of your daily life. And and here in Ephesians 6, God, through the Apostle Paul, is clearly saying to each of us that we need to submit our lives to Christ and to one another in these various family relationships. So last week, Verses 1 through 4, we began. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. We could go back to Exodus chapter 20. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke, provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction, the nurture and admonition, some translations say, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, church... Christian family life. It's important to all of us. And Christian family life is a work of God's Spirit in the lives of those who do everything for Christ's sake. We keep Christ in mind. Our life is hidden in Christ. Our life is alive in Christ. We live because of Christ. And so we want our family relationships to be Christ-honoring. So I could ask for a show of hands, but I don't need to because every one of you would raise your hand on this next question. Who wishes to live in a happy home? (laughs) Everyone wants a happy home. And I agree with the pastor who wrote this. Yes, everybody wants a happy home, and most people want a purposeful home. We have a mission in this home, a home with a mission and a destiny beyond the mere satisfaction of our daily desires. And we, want, we want homes that are different, where, where each person flowers rather than fades. We want homes with the aroma of respect rather than the odor of a continual belittling of one another. Homes with laughter instead of bitterness. Eye-to-eye conversations instead of sporadic comments here and there. Peace. We want peace in our home. We don't want conflict in our home. We, we want a, a sense in our family that we, have, we share a, a common mission and purpose in life instead of fostering just introversion and, and, and social media addiction. So church, in the book of Ephesians, we think back to chapter 5 again. Paul taught us in chapter 5 that we need to look carefully then how we walk, right? Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of our time because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, he said, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do Christians want to know what the will of the Lord is? Yes, we do. It it, it is God's will that we should submit to one another out of that like definition that I said a few minutes ago, submit to one another, be ready to lay down our lives, to, to honor others instead of honoring ourselves, to serve others instead of expecting us to be served. We need to submit to one another out of first a reverence for Christ. We need to make the best use of our time in our daily family life. We know this, parents. I'm here to remind us all that Every day is a day that we can be used somehow to spiritually instruct our children and fathers to, and mothers. And mothers don't feel slighted that Paul says fathers here. I mean, the, the, the Greek word there has been used another place in Scripture for parents. All right? So we're, we're, in, we're in this together. We know that, moms and dads. We're in this parenting deal together. So mom and dad, parents, every day is a day of opportunity. And if you don't care... If you don't care, you think, well, this week I just can't do it. I'm, just, I'm not going to teach them God's way. You know, I, I don't want to teach them what pleases God. Then how in the world are they going to obey Ephesians chapter 6? Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Why? Mom and dad don't. Remember, Ephesians is all about what? Unity. Unity in the church, unity in Christ, unity in our families now. And we should seek this unity by living wisely and making best use of the time because the time is short. Trust me, your children will grow up faster than you know. And they'll start having kids and you'll be a grandparent before you know it. And are they going to live in such a way that brings honor to the name? And not just your name, most importantly, Christ's name. That means being filled. As Paul breaks that out back in Ephesians chapter 5, making best use of the time, as Paul says, means being filled with the Spirit back in verse 18, encouraging each other through song in verse 19 of chapter 5, and then we're building up to 6, and he teaches us that we're supposed to make the best use of every opportunity in our homes and our workplaces. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We make our way up to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we have excellent instruction of how we're to build these healthy relationships in the home and in the workplace now, I mean, between slaves and masters then, and there's a reason why Paul said that, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But we might today think in turn, because slavery is, is, is not something that uh, Christians support then or now, but, but Paul knew, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Paul knew that he had to just tell the truth and say, masters, slaves who live in the master's homes are part of the household, uh, I'm just going there for a second, um, you both are accountable to God for how you're acting. Just keep, keep that in mind, but the Bible doesn't warrant nor support slavery at all. Then or now, it was a, a very poor hermeneutic back in, in, in the um, early days of America where we had slavery. Very poor biblical herme- hermeneutic of how to interpret that. But thank be to God, we're, we're past that now. Um, where was I? Um, so, <clears throat> parents, that's where I was. If your kids don't see the love of Christ, you and your wife are submitting to Christ together loving each other, submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ, your kids are going to see that, and they're going to have a, a much harder time honoring, honoring and obeying you in the Lord. One more word on that, husbands and wives, parents. This idea of headship and submission that we, we, we heard about last week, it's, it's really under this, this banner, this larger point of making the best use of your time from back in 516. Have you ever thought of submission in that category? Not as an inconvenient or difficult to understand burden, but God's very design for how we're supposed to make the most of our life for his glory. It's good to think that way. Then we move to the larger context. The, these commands sit within a book, the book of Ephesians, that, that, that gospel is supposed to drive gospel unity in the church between those who have nothing in common but Christ. So this, uh, what this means is that your marriage matters for more than just its own sake. We know that marriage image, marriage's image, Christ's love for who? His church. And, and so when, when roles of the husband and wife are taken care of biblically, your marriage contributes to the unity in Christ's church. So, so never forget that a biblical marriage is far more profound than merely the bond between one man and one woman. It is that. It is a bond between one man and one woman. But it's one of the ways that God pictures his love for us, right? And therefore, it's one of the ways in which God builds unity in the church. But look back at chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. You see, the new covenant here in the New Testament is different than the Old Covenant, right? In the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, in Christ, the promise of the land is not physical land on earth, but what? Eternal life in Christ, which begins the moment that we're born again and comes to that full reality later in the age that's coming. So Paul's not teaching about salvation based on works. We know that. It's all of grace. But remember the obedience of children, as Paul is alluding to here, the obedience of children is the evidence that children know God and it results in receiving blessings from God. So it raises a question for us, parents. Do your children really know God? And how do you know when your child really knows God. Well, I believe you're going to see it in their transformed character. Their new wants, their new desires. Because a credible profession of faith, parent, just doesn't come with words, but displayed in the very lives of the child. In every child of God, whether that child of God is nine years old or 99 years old, there's a change in every true believer, because Christ changes people, brings the spiritually dead to spiritually alive, right? And, and the Holy Spirit comes within every believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a change that happens. I have given out several copies of these two books in the past seven years, 
One of them is titled, Helping Children to Understand the Gospel, and the other one is Preparing Young People for Baptism, a Mentor's Guide. This is from the elders of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which I've been to several times. Uh, This one has the new uh, title of the ministry that supplies these. It's called Truth 78. And if you're interested in going to that, you can type in uh, Truth 78. It'll take you there. Or Children's Desiring God, which was a a ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church up there. And these are excellent, excellent resources uh, that I ask all parents to read. We've got six or seven new copies. There's some in the resource room. There's some in uh, in the office area that can be given to you. But when a parent says, I think my child is... is, um, really wanting to ask Jesus in their heart. I'm like, praise be to God, keep praying for them and keep sharing the gospel and living the gospel in front of them. And, and would you read this book? And, and then if you say your child, you think your child's ready for, for baptism, well, then I'd ask you to please go through this book as mom and dad and see what evidence there is that your child has been born again because there is no salvation without repentance and faith, regardless of the age. Do you hear that? There is no salvation without repentance from sin and belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So, that's why we do not baptize infants at our church, all right? We are baptistic that way in that we believe that baptism of children is baptism of a believer, all right? So, before the, ba- the, the uh, young person or older person, I think if we look back over the last seven years, we've probably baptized about the same number of adults and those who would classify as a, child, as a child. But we don't want children to think that, you know, it's just um, out of peer pressure, out of wanting to please mom and dad, that, that they're going to walk forward or, or grab the pastor's hand and say, I want to pray that prayer with you so I know that I can know that I'm born again. No, you know if they're born again, if they start displaying the fruit of the Spirit of God in their life. They start having a, a, a sorrow in their heart for disobeying you or, or their brother or sister. You know, they, they start acting differently. Not just something they say out of a Sunday school class, but there's a, a true remorse and a sorrow for sinning, not against you or them, but sinning against God. And, and, and little minds can understand these concepts if you just have the Bible with you, a resource that points you to the biblical scriptures to show you that it's very important not to mislead your children on what true salvation in Christ is. Otherwise, you, you end up uh, later in life as you're a, a, a member of a church in a, in a role of responsibility and you hear testimony upon testimony upon testimony of, of teenagers or college students saying, I did this because, you know, me and my brothers and sisters were all baptized at the same time, everywhere from three to nine years old. And, and why are all my brothers and sisters not walking with the Lord right now? I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't answer that question for, for them or for you. But have you ever entertained the thought that, that maybe Christ is not their treasure? They don't love God more than the world? I I don't know. But it's important what we teach our children because children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Children can't do that. Well, they can do it. They can can obey and, and inwardly harbor resentment for you. Okay, or they can desire to obey because they see you obeying God and obeying Christ, and this is real in your lives, but if they don't see that, then how in the world can you expect them to obey you? This is very important stuff. Eternal life. 
eternal death is at stake. And whether we get this right or wrong. So let's not be too hasty. Every parent, every Christian parent wants their little loved one to love Jesus, to be saved, and to be baptized, to become a part of God's family, so they can live eternal life. But if you could save them, you'd save them in the womb. We need to save more babies with physical life in the womb, but in spiritual life, we know God is the saver of souls, not us. And so we bear witness to the truth of the gospel in our family, in our marriages, so that our children see this is a reality in mom and dad's life. But only the Spirit of God can convict them and convince them that they need to surrender their life to Christ, repent of their sin, trust in Christ as their greatest treasure that they'll ever experience in life, and therefore follow Him and live for Him the remainder of their life on this earth. Otherwise, Churches are leading many young people astray. And then they get later in life in their 20s and 30s, and they talk to a pastor, let's say, and they say, Pastor, I I did all that. I did everything the church told me to do. You know, I was seven years old. I was five years old. And I remember distinctly going all the way under, so I'm a part of God's family. An action does not save you. Only Christ saves you. And if you don't love him, you're probably not saved. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't convince you of that. But children, you need to love and honor Christ first and then your parents. So if you need any books, let us know on how to better... Teach your children what true salvation, what a credible profession of faith is, because we do not want to mislead anyone that they are saved when they're really not. And you and I don't know that, but God knows, and they know whether they love God or it's just lip service. I think I skipped something. I just want to briefly say this. No, I'm supposed to get to it, so I'll wait. Well, let's move on to Ephesians 6, 4. With a slide. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Greek word that we translate to bring up here in Ephesians 6, 4 is is a very nurturing word in the Greek. Dad's and moms, nurture your children. Nurture them in what? The discipline and instruction of the Lord. Moms and dads, we play a crucial role in the God-ordained role of discipleship of our children. The primary role, we believe, in this church. And our youth leader comes alongside the parents to to teach the Word of God and to model the Word of God, but our youth leader can't save your children either, okay? They're looking first and primarily to whether this is true or not when they look at our lives. And so parental discipleship and the discipline and instruction of the Lord 
basically should center on the things that Paul's already taught them earlier in the book of Ephesians as he's writing this letter to these believers. I mean, I closed last week with, with chapter 5, just reading that. And if we look back at chapter 4, we have to ask ourselves as parents, are we teaching our kids these beautiful truths from Ephesians, from, from the Word of God? I have a, a slide. If you want to turn back to Ephesians 4, 25, I'm going to read some of that. This is, parents wondering what to teach them and how to live a life in this evil world because the days are evil in which we live and we're supposed to be set apart from the world, right? Well, in verse 25 of chapter 4, Paul said, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We, we, we be, we're going to be angry, but do not sin. And don't let the sin go down on your anger. Give no, no opportunity to the devil. Let, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Doing honest work with his own hands. So he may have something to share with anyone in need. So you tell your children that's what we do. We do honest work with our own hands and minds for the glory of God. So we can provide for you. Parents, you're to provide for your children. I'm going to get to that at the very end of the sermon today. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, child. So don't speak falsehood. Let your word be true. Be a person of integrity. But only such as good is for building up. It fits the occasion. It may give grace to those who hear from you when you speak. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you, along with all malice. So, so child, this is what you need to do. You need to be kind. To one another. You need to have a, a tender heart toward those around you. You need to forgive one another as God in Christ has even forgiven you. Do you know that? And then you move on to Ephesians 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You, you walk in love and, and teach them what that means as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So, so love you teach your children when they're young, very young, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. You, you teach them that, that love is a sacrifice, that love is not lust. And, and if you say you, you love someone when you're a teenager, that means you're, you're sacrificing for that person, not to get something from that person, but that you, you sacrifice for that person. That's how you demonstrate whether you love them or not. So then he, then he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you, child and parent, as is proper among Christians. So let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Are you serious? Have you ever taught middle schoolers? High schoolers? Let there be no filthiness. You you talk to your sons and daughters. Or foolish talk, or crude joking in the locker rooms, or on the athletic fields. You make this real to them. They're, They're out of place. They're out of place in your life. They're very much in place in people who can't stand Christ nor God. Okay, but they're very much in, in play in our lives. And so you don't, you don't permit when they, when they come home and they hear something at school and they, they bleed it out, expletive, blah, blah, whatever. You, you, whoa, 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 whoa. Where'd you learn that? We don't talk that way. You know, that, that really dishonors God. It dishonors his word. Right? It really does. So, 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 so we teach our children the word of God. And children need us parents to be talking to them about this. If we don't talk to them about the world, who's going to talk to them about how to live? Social media will. And you can rest assured that they won't honor you and obey you and the Lord if they learn this from social media. And that will lead to many regrets in life. 
Talk to them. Plan a family night together. We used to use Friday nights for our family worship time, uh, a time to gather the family. Have you done this in the living room? I know some of you do. In the, in the kitchen, wherever. Sing songs together. Read God's Word together. Pray together. Ask how your week is actually going. Is there anything that we can pray for you about? And do you have any, in, in a situation, we had this book called uh, Sticky Situations. I, I still recommend it. And just, we're young children. It, it, it goes through, and even on up to 10, 11, 12 probably, goes through various life situations that they might be experiencing and ask questions like, how would you respond? What would you do in this situation? It gives them a, a chance to voice that and then the parents to give some godly counsel there. Talk about what's going on, you know, and then pray for one another. On a regular, make this a habitual thing, like maybe every Friday night or, or Saturday, whatever, where you can plan to spend time, as much time together as possible, at least once a week for an hour or so. You can, you can find that time in your calendars or make time for it. Okay, I need to press on quickly. Ephesians 6, 5 through 7. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Christians, are we called to be bondservants of Christ? Yes, slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So, when Paul is writing this letter to the believers in Ephesus, do you know about how many people were likely bondservants or slaves in the city of Ephesus at this time? Estimates are up to one-third to one-half of the population of Ephesus were bondservants, okay? And these bondservants, they were considered just an integral part of the families, okay, that they worked for or had to work for, okay? But listen to this. Paul's instructions for bondservants here, it's just a natural part. So this is, you know, as he's going through these relationships, and this was a part of the society then. And, and so he wanted to give them some clear biblical teaching on this. But when you read this, there's a question that comes to mind that I didn't answer in my sermon. And I realized that. And you're like, why in the world, as I was going through this, why in the world didn't he just come out and just slam right away how evil slavery was? Do you know how why This was just, there, there, was no, there was no other society in which they were born. They are like, Everyone was born into this. I mean, bond servants and slaves existed, and, 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 and it, it was like the functioning of, of society back then. And so it raises questions in our minds. And, and Curtis Vaughn, one of my professors at Southwestern many years ago, wrote a great commentary on the book of Ephesians, a small one. This is the founder's uh, Southern Baptist Study Guide commentary. It's great, actually. And uh, he actually said more than half the people seen on the streets of some of the great cities of the Roman world were slaves. It's estimated that there were about 60 million of them in the Roman Empire. But did you know this? Included among them were laborers, of course, domestic servants. We get that. But also clerks and teachers and doctors and other professional people. They were people without rights, yes, mere property existing only for the comfort, convenience, and pleasure of their owners. But many of them were better educated and more cultured than their masters and were charged with the instruction of the children of the household. Doubtless, the early Christian churches numbered many slaves among their members. Now, this is the part I really wanted to get to. It is a surprise to some people that the, apostle, the apostles did not denounce slavery in unequivocal language and demand its immediate overthrow. 
But the apostles did not conceive of themselves primarily as social reformers. They were first and foremost heralds of the good news of salvation in Christ, right? Yet, they did not condone slavery. Indeed, they announced the very principles. Did you hear these few verses? The very principles such as that of complete spiritual equality between master and slave. Is that radical? Yes. That ultimately destroyed this terrible blot on civilization. The apostles' approach to this social evil was like that of a woodsman who strips the bark off a tree and leaves it to die. And and he goes on. There's more here, but... Yeah, I want to read this sentence. Christianity did not rudely assault the forms of social life or seek to force even a justifiable revolution by external appliances. Such an enterprise would have quenched the infant religion in blood. The gospel, listen, the gospel achieved a more nobler feat. It did not stand by in disdain and refuse to speak to the slave till he gained his freedom and the shackles fell from his arms. No, but it went down into his degradation, took him by the hand, uttered words of kindness in his ear and gave him a liberty which fetters could not abridge and tyranny could not suppress. Hmm. And you could go on, look at Colossians, 1 Peter, Philemon here. New Testament writers sought, writers sought to give the slaves a sense of dignity in their work and comfort to them in their suffering, and they sought to regulate this institution among their own people by reminding Christian masters that they should treat their slaves with fairness and kindness. Still an evil, it was an evil then, slavery. You know, slavery exists today in places? Horrendous. It's got nothing, no part in actual biblical Christianity. Paul, just as we look at this, says this existed then. And these bondservants, he's actually talking to masters and slaves who are believers. Who are believers. How should they interact with one another in the home? Very powerful. And actually, one resource I read said, the result is that this kind of servitude slowly died out in antiquity through the influence of Christian living, Christianity. So the principles in this passage apply today to us as well, to any lawfully constituted authority. The only exception be if that lawfully constituted authority requires us to obey God and his word, right, or compromises our commitment to Christ, then we disobey them as they did in Acts chapter 4. But Paul is reminding the Christian masters and slaves in this passage that it would be natural for Christian bondservants to despise their earthly masters in the name of their heavenly one. But he says, fulfilling one's earthly obligations is in fact a service unto the Lord. He's telling the slaves, not by the way of eye service, when someone's just watching you, doing your work as you're just people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart and rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and, and not to man. So Ephesians 6, 8 teaches us, you're gonna, he, this servant's going to receive back from the Lord. Selfless service is never ignored or forgotten by God. There's no discrimination with the Lord. He's going to reward every faithful servant equally, whether the Bible says it's a bondservant or free. If, uh, verse 9, these masters, yes, they had the power of life and death over their slaves, beatings, imprisonment, sale, 
Harsher, into harsher servitude was common. But according to the word of God, the duty of the masters then and in all authority is to do good to those in submission. Don't take advantage of their authority by threatening them. Because why? There's no partiality with the Lord. He's going to judge all men, slave or free. And I might add supervisors and employees. You ever thought about it that way? Of how as an employee or a supervisor, supervisor of people we're supposed to act? Yeah, I worked in many secular jobs before becoming a pastor. And how I acted as an employee, as a subordinate to my superiors or a superior to my subordinates, it spoke volumes about what? Whether I loved the Lord and cared for them or not. Or whether my supervisor walked in a way that pleased the Lord or not. So we've got to ask ourselves, do we view our current jobs as an opportunity to bear witness that we work as unto the Lord and not as unto man? That we show up on time? That we do our jobs well with integrity? Well, I believe God will be honored in your life and in your work if you submit to Christ. They'll see the difference that Christ is making in your life. And some days they'll be astounded because your life is most generally on a consistent basis as a believer characterized by characteristics that are different than the worldly people in the same job. What? What does that mean? Well, it means when you got up that morning, you're more likely to say, Lord, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, may I do it all for your glory. Lost people never think that way. Save people go, Lord, today I, I really need your help. I, I need to be filled with your spirit. Help me to be a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Because everyone's out of control at my workplace. So how, I don't want to be out of control, God, because I'm bearing witness to you, one way or the other. I need to wrap this up. So I debated how to do it. <clears throat> but I found an article that I wanted parents particularly to have. So I'm jumping back to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 6 with this conclusion. In this article... I found on Desiring God, it's written by John Piper, of course, and uh, it says 10 biblical truths on the obedience of children. And it was one of the most visited uh, web pages uh, in Desiring God's history. Parents wanted to know. Um, well, actually, the, the one, excuse me, I can't edit that, what I just said, so let me correct what I just said. This article was written as a, as a, as a response to the article that a lot of parents went to, all right? And that article was entitled, Parents Require Obedience of Your Children. And so then he wrote this article uh, to go a little bit deeper and give a biblical basis for how do we raise children? How do we disciple our children? And he gives 10 biblical truths on the obedience of children. Each one of these that I'm going to show you real quickly, just list them off, are going into more depth here. And I have about 40, I don't think I do. I think I forgot them, didn't I, Gary? They're not sitting there, are they? Okay. 
Well, Gary's going to graciously, after the service, go to my office and grab them off my desk and put them right there before you leave. Okay, I appreciate that, Gary. Um, but no, I want you to have them. That's why I printed them off. But uh, as you know, I am very imperfect, and I forget things, and I forgot that. So let's put up number one, Will, on uh, 10 Biblical Truths on Obedience of Children. He's going to outline them all here, all right, into more depth and give some biblical meat to it. Marriage between one man and one woman for life is God's plan for the procreation and rearing of children. Can I get an amen? All right, number two. I won't do that for all of them, sorry. The covenant, but I, I would say that to all of them, and we would too, so let's, let's press on. The covenant union of marriage was the way God planned to fill the earth with human beings who would reflect his glory by their faith and creative productivity. I like how he works that one out. Number three, children were not to be conceived outside the covenant of marriage. Hear me, young people, older people. For that reason and others, sexual relations were denied to the unmarried and adultery was forbidden to the married. Young people will always say, whoa, I shouldn't have done that. God knows what he's talking about in his word. It's for our good. And this is good in marriage. And it's hideous outside marriage. That's why we have so many abortions in our country. Number, number four. Children are a gift from God. They are not of our own making. Why? Because he makes them. Five, parents, therefore, are to provide for their children's needs. Six, parents are to instruct their children in the basic skills of cultural life, the truths about God and his way of salvation and the path of wisdom in this world. Oh, parents, impart God's wisdom to them or else they'll get their wisdom from the world and you know where that leads. Number seven, parents are to discipline disobedient children with proportionate and loving measures of punishment. That's one of his longer ones in here, okay? Like I said last week, we are to discipline, teach them that disobeying God and, and disobeying you as parents, if you're giving them godly instruction on how to live, is uh, it's good to discipline them in proportionate and loving measures, all right? Do not ever abuse or beat a child, Amen? Number eight, parents are to encourage their children. Please take a look at this, parents. Number nine, the responsibility of parents to require obedience is underlined by the duty of God, by the duty God gives to children to obey. Okay, we saw that in Ephesians 6 today. And lastly, number 10, the both and task of parenting. Here's our two tasks. We encourage our children and teach them, discipline them. It's teaching them, correcting them in a loving manner that shows there are always consequences to sin. Is rooted in God's purpose that true biblical faith flourishes when we Christians and their children are regularly reminded of God's kindness and his severity. That's truth, and we're unafraid to tell you the truth. Some churches stop right there, right? And they're lying to their people, and I mean that. 
If you believe the Bible, you believe God is this, he defines love, and you believe he's a God of wrath that will punish sin, or he's not God. Right? It's both and. And that's why we're joyfully serious people. Are you a joyfully serious person? I hope you will be, because this is costly. Because this is the gospel, and we treasure the gospel. And we sing about the one who hung there for us. I was going to wait two weeks for this, but we're going to got to close anyway, so we might as well close with a song. So, Kate, if you'd come forward. And I want us to sing a very familiar hymn in closing today. And I pray that you'll do some heart work and that you'll listen to the lyrics of this old hymn that some of you can recite by heart, but listen to the words. Do you need the music? Okay, we're all good. I'll keep it going here. No, because, I mean, hey, this is real life. This is not a show. We don't design services to entertain, but to encourage and to warn. Can we do both? I hope that Christians are encouraged when the word is proclaimed faithfully, the, the whole counsel of God's word. But have you ever taken a look at some of the things that we sing? I, I, I love when we, when we focus on the good and the right, the true, the, the God-centeredness of our, our hymns and our songs. But how many of you know the old rugged cross? Hmm? A lot. Look at verse 3 that sometimes skipped. We're going to sing all four verses right now in a second, and then we're going to close. In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, such a wonderful beauty I see. For twas on that old cross, Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. His will is our sanctification. Will we submit to him? We submit our lives to him. Well, let's stand and sing this together in the context of what we've just heard about submitting our lives to Christ.
leave it. Really? Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will So God, hear our imperfect plea, our imperfect lives. Lord, you are the God of perfection, and you alone can save us from our sin. Father, I pray the Holy Spirit will work through the proclamation of your truth. Lord, that you'll set someone free today from their sin. Oh God, how you desire, how you love us. You so loved us that you sent your son to die on this cross on the cross, to pay the price for our sin, to bear the wrath against our sin, to set us free, to reconcile us to you, God, to impute your righteousness to us, because we alone are not righteous. There are none righteous, no, not one. Oh, God, our hearts are desperately wicked. Father, we need heart transformation. So, Father, forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we ask, God. And I pray for those who are lost right now, God, that you will draw them to yourself, Father. They'll see the wickedness of their sin in, your, in, in, in their eyes to you, that, that they have sinned against you and you alone if they, if they sin, God. And they'll confess their sins, repent of them, and turn their lives over to Christ, who alone can give them peace and joy and happiness in this world. So help us all to submit our lives to Christ. In him is the victory. So, God, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.